0: Ezra chapter 5 Ezra chapter 5 and if you're joining us for the first time we are currently going through the Old Testament and we're in Ezra 5 right now and the title of this message is moved by God's Word moved by God's Word or inspired by God's Word however you want to look at it from 20 from 530 to 520 BC the Jews focused all their attention on building their own houses while they were neglecting the house of God. And the Lord chastened his people. And he chastened them to encourage them to obey his commands. But they refused to listen. How many times does God chasten us? Does God tell us something or do something or show us something? But we still don't listen. It's a hard way to go. But God will do whatever he needs to to get our attention. The rebuilding of the temple was stopped by the enemy. Remember last week in chapter 4. And they did it by writing a letter to King Artaxerxes giving a false impression of Jerusalem and calling it a rebellious and evil city. Then King Artaxerxes did some research. And he found in the records that there had been a rebellion by these people. And at the very end of the kingdom, you know, the southern kingdom of Judah, three times they had rebelled. Finally, King Nebuchadnezzar came and he destroyed the city. But they didn't check things out thoroughly. Even though they found the rebellion to be true, they didn't look for the decree that had been given by King Cyrus to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So this was very discouraging, a discouraging time for God's people. They may not, uh, they not only stopped building, but they were also tempted to just walk away from the whole project. That's what discouragement does. And that's why it's one of Satan's favorite tricks, if you will, or it's one of Satan's favorite tools to discourage God's people. Because it, it causes you to want to quit, to give up, and just to walk away from the whole idea of walking with God or serving God. The people felt that this would be the best way to solve their problems. And you know what? If you want God to stop hassling, I mean, sorry, if you want the enemy to stop hassling you, Quit walking with God. Quit serving God. Because, see, if you're effective for the kingdom of God and you're being a witness and you're bringing people to the kingdom of God, Satan hates you. And and you might as well hang a bullseye on your back or your chest because you're a target of Satan. Now, if you're not doing anything for the kingdom of God and you're not, you know, witnessing and you're not being a good example and you're just, you know, you're just going to church. Satan loves churchgoers. They don't do anything, and he won't bother them because they're doing just exactly as he wants them to do. They're not having any effect on the kingdom of God. There's a lot of people who feel that if they would just change their location, change their church, change their state, change their job, that would solve their problems, which isn't always true. It can be true if God is leading you. And that's what you have to decide. You can't run away from your problems. These people here in chapter 5, they didn't run away from their problems. But listen to what David's thinking was when he was on the run from Saul. It's a great example of what happens when you begin thinking in your own heart. In 1 Samuel 27, verses 1 through 7, listen to David's story. It says, David kept thinking to himself. Now, this is where the whole problem got, began. And that's, you've heard it said that when you begin to think, that's when you get in trouble. David began thinking to himself, his humanistic viewpoint. Here's what he said. Someday, Saul is going to get me. He said, the best thing I can do. No notice, he's thinking to himself. He comes up with the best thing I can do. See, he's left God out. The best thing I can do, he says, which is now pessimistic reasoning, he says, is to escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me. This is rationalistic logic. Saul will stop hunting for me in Israelite territory, and I will finally be safe. Notice, he was thinking to himself. He was reasoning with himself. And he came to the conclusion, the best thing that I can do is to escape, run away, go to the Philistines, and there I will finally be safe. So it says that David took 600 of his men, went over there, and he joined Achish, the king of Gath. David brought his wives, he brought his family over there. And and word soon got to Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he stopped hunting for him. So David did have temporary peace. And it says, one day David said to Achish, if it's all right with you, we would rather live in one of the country towns instead of here in the royal city. So Achish gave him the town of Ziklag, which still belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. Notice, and they lived, David and his family lived among the Philistines for a year and four months. So David's thinking was, one day Saul's going to catch up to me and he's going to get me. So the best thing for me to do is to run away, and then Saul will stop, will leave me alone. I'll finally be safe. Again, a false sense of security. So David, in his rationalizing, was disobedient to the Lord. Notice where he was living, in Gath. Remember what took place in Gath? That's where he killed Goliath. Gath was enemy territory. So David, in his rationalizing, thinking this is the best thing for me to do, he disobeys God. God didn't tell him to go to Gath. God didn't tell him to run away from his problems. And he goes and he lives in enemy territory with his family for a year and four months. He was totally out of the will of God. So what did God do in order to get the work here in chapter 5 going again? Verses 1 and 2 says God raised up prophets, preachers, Haggai and Zechariah, and he called them to encourage the people to resume the building of the temple. They knew, the people knew that King Cyrus had given them the decree. He gave them the okay, he gave them the permission to rebuild in Jerusalem. And they knew it. They knew it was God's will. and knew they knew it was God's time to rebuild the city. So let's begin now in chapter 5, beginning with verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So here we see the inspiration of the word of God, the inspiration of prophecy. God, remember, God spoke the world into existence just through his word. That shows the power, the demonstration of the power of God's word. He spoke the word into existence in Genesis. And by that same word, the Lord governs what he's created, and he governs, he rules his people. And church history shows that when God wants to stir up his people to do his will, he calls people to proclaim the word of God to them. Martin Luther's preaching brought about what we call the Reformation. It was a movement that transformed not only Germany, but the whole Christian world. John Wesley's preaching brought about a spiritual awakening in Great Britain that brought many people to the Lord Jesus. And historians say that Wesley's revival helped to save England from the kind of bloodshed that France experienced during the French Revolution. Never underestimate The power of the faithful preaching of God's word. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of of pastors, the famous British pastor preacher said this. He said, I cannot help feeling that the man who preaches the word of God is standing not on a mere platform, but on a throne. Haggai started his ministry of the word of God in 520 BC and five of his messages are recorded in the book by his name. A month or two later, a man named Zechariah, a priest that God had called to be a prophet, joined with Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah delivered God's words to the leaders and the remnant. And they, that is the Jews, they prospered through the preaching of Haggai, uh, the prophet, and Zechariah. Remember this. Make a note of this. Any work of God that isn't built on the word of God will not prosper. If it's not built on the foundation of God's word, that work will not prosper. You see, Moses' success as the leader of Israel came from his faith and his obedience to God's word. Joshua's success in conquering the enemy in Canaan was also based on his devotion to God's word. You see, when we obey God's word, we can expect blessings and great reward. God said the only thing, the only thing God promised to bless was his word. If we want to know the power of God, we need to also know the word of God. The word, the the work of building the temple had stopped for about 16 years. And then the prophets prophesied to the Jews. Notice what prophecy does. Again, it stirs people up. The word of God stirs people up. The people needed to be stirred up. And you know, we need to be stirred up a lot of times. Why? Jesus is coming soon. I mean, if that doesn't stir us up, I don't know what it's going to. Haggai and Zechariah were with them and he helped them to build according to verse 2. Sometimes God sends prophets to encourage and to strengthen his people. Now to do this, Haggai and Zechariah not only preached God's word, but they also got involved in the work. Notice what they preach and what they did the same many times we speak the word of God but we're not doing the word of God our words and our works must match in the church today God appoints prophetic voices to help us with our work and their ministry should be the same should have the same effect on us the way the voices of Haggai and Zechariah had on Israel Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Now, while the building stopped, their excitement for the house of God had cooled off. If they they would have examined their hearts, they might have recognized, you know what, we've cooled off. We're not on fire for God anymore. And they might have guessed, you know what, God is displeased with us. But you see, they didn't have the courage to examine their own heart. Are we slow or disinterested when it comes to examining our own hearts? And to look at ourselves in light of the condition of these people here and then answer that question? David said in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. David was asking God to point out any sin in his life. But then when God shows us the sin in our life, are we willing to do something about it? Are we willing to repent? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to get rid of that thing in my life that is displeasing to God? And if they, had, if they would have looked around, they might have seen some of the signs of God's displeasure. You know, I, I'm still blown away by people who, you know, I get calls for, for sometimes from, from people that are just having a rough time. People who profess to be Christians, who are living in sin. Specifically, a couple living together. And they've been living together three, four years. They're not married. And, and usually it's, it's the lady that calls, you know, I... You know, I, I, God is not blessing us and, you know, we're having such a difficult time and, and on. And I go, you're, you're, and you're, you're living together, right? Yeah. You're living in sin, lady. And him too. But I'm talking to her. So you're living in sin. How can you expect God to bless you when you're living together? When you're living in sin. God doesn't bless obedience. <laughs> I don't know how many good parents bless their children for disobedience. God's our heavenly father. He's not going to bless his children for being disobedient. So again, uh, people don't understand many times why why they're having so many difficulties. Hey, we need to examine our lives and say, you know what? Is there sin in my life? Am I doing something that's displeasing to God? And like David, show me, Lord. Show me so that I can change it, so that I can get rid of it. In the Israelites case here, in their case, year after year, the heavens were holding back the rain and the dew. They weren't getting any rain. They weren't getting any dew. And the earth wasn't producing any crops. And that's because the Lord called for a drought. He didn't let the dew come. He didn't let the rain come. He didn't let the earth produce its crops. He took his blessing away from the people who worked in the fields and the vineyards and the orchards. I mean, sometimes we are so slow to get it. Slow to see God's hand in our own problems. Think about it. The worst thing that could happen to us is, is God to leave us to ourselves. In Romans chapter 1, we read that, that those men who did not want to contain God in their own minds, and he turned the, the, the creature into the creator, it says God gave them up. Three times you read, God gave them up. As I said, God doesn't bless obedience. He lets go. He says, you don't want to listen to me? Go do your own thing. See how it turns out. But Haggai, when he preached the word to him, made them see the truth. The first thing that Haggai did was wake them up to see that they were getting more selfish and less interested. They were more into themselves and less interested in the things of God. Haggai spoke the word of God to Zerubbabel and the others. Haggai 1, 1 through 7. And this is where the story comes. It says, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. How do we justify, you know, focusing on ourselves and living in in luxury and nice house? And not that that's wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong. But when we're focused on building our lives and ourselves, and, and we're focusing on ourselves, while the work of God is ignored or neglected. That's the problem here. Then Haggai reminded reminded them that God was the cause of their skimpy harvest. And he he encouraged them to get up and to build. Notice he says in in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, listen to what he says. He says, you have planted much, but harvested little. You have food to eat, but it's not enough to fill you up. You have wine to drink, but it's not enough to satisfy your thirst. You have clothing to wear, but not enough to keep you warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider how things are going for you. Now go up into the hills, bring down timber and rebuild my house. God says, then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He says, you hope for rich harvest, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I, God says, I blew it away. Why? He says, because my house is lying in ruins, says the Almighty God, while you're all busy building your own fine houses. He says, that's why the heavens have held back the dew and the earth has withheld its crops. Notice it says, I have called for a drought. So when we hear about droughts, I believe it's God's judgment because God controls the weather. Earthquakes, droughts, fires, whatever. God controls what goes on. God says, I'm the one who called for a drought on your fields and hills. A drought to wither the grain and the grapes and the olives and all your other crops. A drought to starve both you and your cattle and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. This message from God had the desired effect. Listen to what Haggai 1, 12 through 15 says, Then Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people obeyed the message of the Lord their God. It had been delivered by the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, and the people worshipped the Lord in earnest. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the people this message from the Lord. The Lord said, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord sparked the enthusiasm of Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the high priest, and the whole remnant of God's people. They, began, they came and they began their work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. God got through them. but notice how, what, what harsh things God had to do to get through to them. Hold back the rain. Keep their crops from going, Growing. Blowing, just their money was, was, was like being put in pockets with holes in it. He said, I called for a drought, the olives, your crops and all, all that. He said, I'm starving you, your, your cattle, everything you, that you work so hard to get because I want to get through to you. That's how much God loves us. The inspiration of prophecy, the inspiration of the word of God is what keeps us going. That's why we need to continue to read the word of God and be taught the word of God. And the prophets of God, verse 2 says, we're with them and helping them. The inspiration of prophecy stirs us up under the burdens of the work of God. That's what keeps us going. God's word, God's promises, God's promises for strength. For wisdom. Haggai showed up again 24 days after his first appearance with needed words. Listen to what he said in Haggai 1, 13 and 14. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, Notice, I am with you, says the Lord. What a blessed assurance to know that God is with you. How encouraging. Prophecy keeps God's people from complaining. Just to be defiant, the enemy will cause trouble. But there are also grumpy and touchy Christians among the godly who embarrass their leaders. And there are grumblers who just seem to enjoy putting down the good things that are going on at the moment by comparing them with the way they did things in the past. Oh, well, our last church did it this way, and oh, it was much better, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth. We're not to get stuck in the past. We're to let the past teach us. We're to learn from the past. Haggai, 27 days after his earlier message, showed up again to encourage the faithful against the enemy. Prophecy will hold us up against the attacks of the enemy. Now, when they started to rebuild, guess what? The attacks started up again. Like I said earlier, anytime you are doing something for God, you can expect the enemy to attack. This time the attack was led by Tatanai and Shethar Bosni who questioned the Jews about hey man why are you guys rebuilding You know, didn't King Artaxerxes tell you to stop Zachariah is now on the scene he exhorts them to repent notice that when trials come we should search our hearts and if we see the need we need to change our ways Haggai also followed with encouraging words and assurance that even through there's, even, even though there's opposition, the work would prosper. Remember, Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. We can expect interference. We can expect opposition. We can expect problems. But Jesus said, keep on going because those gates of hell will not stop you. They will not prevail. They will not win over. Zechariah later gave them the same assurances. These messages that were brought to God's people by Haggai and Zechariah came just at the right time to encourage the leaders and the workers. Remember this. All these encouragements are also for those building the spiritual temple, which is the kingdom of God. Because the prophecies also apply to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be inspired by prophecy. Now let's move to verses 3 through 5. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, that is the river Euphrates, and Sheth, uh, Shethar, Bosni, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. Notice, but the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. God used, first he used the word of God. He used the the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah to start the rebuilding. Now he uses the officials in verses 3 through 17. That is to the end of the chapter. God used the local officials The people of the land who are the troublemakers, they got the authority from the Persian king Artaxerxes to stop rebuilding the city and the wall of Jerusalem. And they used it to stop the rebuilding of the temple as well. But after many years, through the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah, the work began, it resumed. But so did also the old hostility, the opposition. But I love what verse 5 says, the eye of their God. Mark that, the eye of their God was on them. The eye of their God was on them to give them assurance and comfort. This is an example of God's watchful eye and His loving care for you. And He's all seen, so know that he, His eyes are everywhere. Job 28, 24 says, For He looks to the ends of the earth and He sees under the whole heavens. Proverbs fifteen three Solomon said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God sees us when we're at work in the sanctuary. God sees us at work when we're outside in the city or when we're working on the wall or wherever we might be working. God sees us. He sees our heart. He also sees the hypocrite. He sees the sincere. I mean, how comforting to know that. How encouraging to know what is right the eye of God also shows us his loving kindness Exodus 3 7 through 10 and the Lord said I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt he showed compassion for his suffering people and then he delivered them God also had compassion for Hezekiah's tears 2 Kings 20 verse 5 says, Tell Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. So he felt compassion. God felt compassion for his people in Babylon. And his eye of compassion is watching over them there. God's eye on, on his people also expresses God's satisfaction. So he shows kindness to Israel. Deuteronomy eleven twelve 12 says, A land for which the Lord your God cares, the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it. God's eyes are towards the temple, towards His temple. 1 Kings 8, 29, He says that your eyes may be open towards this temple night and day. God's eyes are towards His people. Psalm 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Again, what a great comfort to the faithful. God's eyes give them wisdom and discretion. They need this in the presence of those that were interrogating them. They needed to know what to say to those that were asking, hey, why are you rebuilding the wall? You were told to stop. These were people of influence. This is Tadanai, the governor. Also with Shethar uh, Bosni, their their companions. They asked questions that brought trouble. Who gave you the authority to build? They asked in verse 3. Then they asked it again in verse 9. Who are your leaders, you know, in, in this questionable work? Who's leading you? But God's people's answers were guided by a careful wisdom. They said in verse 11, we're doing this because we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. What authority could be higher? question do we always and adequately recognize that authority hey i am a child of god and i am to be doing this i know i'm right i love that because if you're speaking the word of god you are right regardless of society and culture and 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 whatever the popular thing may be and and you may be the only one you are the only right one (laughs) Because it's God's word. The people claimed a given right in the temple, which was originally built by one of their great kings, Solomon. And and, and, And them being in captivity didn't cause them to lose their right just because God banished them into captivity for their sin. King Nebuchadnezzar was just a tool of God. He was just a servant of God. And now in verses 11 through 12, we see that God now favors them restoring the temple. We should never be ashamed to tell people how we are connected with God and his work. The eye of God upon his people was to defend them from their enemies. He was always watching. He saw the enemies. He held back the opposition because he saw what was going on. Their former enemies in chapters 4, 7 through 9 aren't mentioned here. The temperament of these men here that were opposing them and questioning them about rebuilding the temple, their disposition, their personality was better. They were were better men. They were more honest about what they said and what they were doing. And the eyes of God upon God's people kept the work going. Ted and I suggested that, you know what? Until Darius determines whether or not They should go on with the building, the temple, go on building, temple. you guys should stop. But again, verse 5, they saw that the eye of their God was on them, so they said, no way. (laughs) They declined. Hey, God's eye is upon us. We know he wants us to do this. We are servants of the most high God. Hey, we're going to continue the work. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah kept this vision clearly in front of them. They kept using, they kept telling the people, "Hey, God's eye was is on you." They came from God's presence, Haggai and Zechariah. They witnessed his visions, they heard his words, and the prophets told this to the people in such a way that the people believed it as if they had seen them for themselves, that God's eye was upon them, and that they went and so they went on with the work. The decree of Silas was brought to the attention of Darius in verse 17. The king gave instructions accordingly in Ezra 6, 6 through 12. And these instructions were carried out and the work was carried out until it was finished. Verses 6 through 17 as we close. This is a copy of the letter that Tatani sent the governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Bosnai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river to Darius, the king. They sent a letter to him in which was written thus to Darius, the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, Who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are building the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because of our fathers... Uh, But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Verse 17. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So off goes another letter to the king. This time it's King Darius. Approximately seven years had gone by. This is another letter that the enemy gets off in a hurry. Now, the thought in this letter is this. They said to King Darius, Now, we didn't go up there purposely to spy this out, to cause any problems. We're really not their enemies. We just happened to be in the neighborhood, and we stopped by for a visit. And this is what we found, King They were told the names of the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And they just answered, verse 11 says, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth and we're building the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king, they're speaking of Solomon of Israel, built and completed. They gave them the history of the captivity that had happened about 70 years before. They gave them solid evidence that King Cyrus had commanded them to rebuild the temple and even sent the temple vessels back with him. The letter ends with this request request in verse 17. So now, if it pleases the king, we ask you to search in the royal archives of Babylon to discover whether King Cyrus ever issued a decree to rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem, and then let the king send us his decision in this matter. These enemies didn't believe that King Cyrus had ever given this decree. But the letter is saying that what the Jews said about such a decree is the basis. This is the reason... why they're rebuilding. They said that King Cyrus did give them the okay to do this. So what they're asking King Darius, hey, you know what, check it out. Have it checked out. See if it's true. Because they are sure there was no decree. And they are sure that these people are doing this on their own. In closing, it's not always easy to speak up for our faith in an unbelieving world. But you know what? We have to. The way to deal with pressure and intimidation is to recognize we are workers for God and His eye is upon us and you know what? We are right. And our commitment is to God first and to others second. When we think about the reactions and the criticism of hostile people, a lot of times Christians get scared. They're intimidated by the world. They're intimidated by those that come hard against them. And they become paralyzed with fear. They shut up and they sit down. If we try not to offend anybody or to please everybody, we're not going to be effective. But we need to remember God is our leader. And His eye is upon us. And His rewards are most important. So don't let anybody intimidate you. Let others know by your words who you are, who you serve, and by your actions that you are a child of God. Father, thank you again for this powerful lesson, Lord. And again, help us to learn from it, God. Help us to grow by it, God. Lord, help us to fear no man, no group. Help us to fear no one but you, Lord. Father, we praise you for being our God and for your eye being upon us, Lord. God, we thank you that we are that we're your servants, Lord. And that Father, Father, we have all the promises and all the assurances in your Word, God, that you'll never leave us nor forsake us, God. And for He who has begun a good work, is faithful to complete it in us, Lord. We thank you for that, God. Thank you for being such a awesome, powerful compassionate god maybe you're here tonight and you don't know the lord jesus christ maybe you're not born again maybe you're embarrassed to think about being a christian or making that move going to church or reading the bible maybe you're afraid people will call you a jesus freak or a religious fanatic so what Jesus died for our sins. To give us new life, eternal life. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship right now. And if God is speaking to you, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Then you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.